Chapter Twelve of the Mountain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter Twelve, in which Cassandra hears the voices and David leases a farm. That evening David sat long on his rock holding his flute and watching the thin golden crescent of the new moon floating through a pale amber sky and one star near its tip slowly sliding down with it toward the deepening horizon. The glowing sky bending to the purple hilltops, the crescent moon and the lone shining star, the evening breeze singing in the pines above him the delicate arbutus blossoms hiding near his feet, the call of a bird to its mate, and the faint answering call from some distant shade, the call in his own heart that as yet returned to him unanswered, but with its quiet surety of ultimate response. The joy of these moments, perfect in beauty and a more abundant assurance of gladness near at hand, filled him and lifted his soul to follow the star. Guided by the unseen hand that held the earth, the crescent moon, and the star to their orbits, would he find the great happiness that should be not his alone, but also for the eyes uplifted to the mountain top, and the heart waiting in the shadows for the one to be sent. Ah, surely, surely, for this had he come. He stooped to the arbutus blossoms to inhale their fragrance. He rose, and lifting his flute to his lips, played to solace his own waiting, inventing new caprices, and tossing forth the notes daringly, delicately, rapturously, now penetrating and strong, now faintly following, scarcely heard, uttering a wordless gladness. Under the great holly tree in the shadows, Cassandra sat, watching as he watched the crescent moon and the lone star sailing in the pale amber light, with the deepening purple mountains hiding the dim distance below them. Often, in the early evening when her mother and Hoyle were sleeping, she would climb up here to pray for Frail that he might truly repent, and for herself that she might be strong in her purpose to give up all her cherished hopes and plans, if thereby she might save him from his own wild, reckless self. It was here his boy's passion had been revealed to her, and here she had seen him changed from boy to man, filled with a man's hunger for her, which had led him to crime, and held him unrepentant and glad, could he thus hold her his own. She must give up the life she had hoped to lead, and take upon her the life of the wife of Cain, to help him expiate his deed. For this must she bow her head to the yoke her mother had borne before her. In the sadness of her heart she said again and again, Christ will understand. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He will understand. Again came to her, as they had often come of late, dropping down through the still air, down through the leafless boughs like joyful hopes yet to be realized the flute notes what were they those sweet sounds 
she held her breath and and lifted her face toward the sky once long ago in france the peasant girl had heard the voices were they heavenly sweet like these sounds did they drop from the sky and fill the air like these oh why should they seem like hopes to her who had put away from her all hope were they bringing hope to her who must rise to toil and lie down in weariness for labor never done who must hold always with sorrowing heart and clinging hands to the soul of a murderer hold and cling if haply she might save and weep for that which for her might never be were they bringing hope that she might yet live gladly as the birds live that she might go beyond that and live like those who have no sin imposed on them to walk with the gods she knew not how but to rise to things beyond her kin down came the notes sweet shrill white notes hurrying drifting lingering calling her to follow down on her heart with healing and comfort they fell lightly as dew on flowers sparkling with life joy-giving and pure slowly she began climbing listening waiting one step upward after another following the sound as if in a trance she moved below her the noise of falling water made a murmuring accompaniment to the music dropping from above an earth-made accompaniment to heaven-sent melody meeting and forming a perfect harmony in her heart as she climbed gradually the horror and the sorrow fell away from her even as the soul shall one day shed its garment of earth until at last she stood alone and silent near david etherealized in the faint light to a spirit-like semblance of a woman with a glad pounding of his heart he sprang towards her scarcely conscious of the act he held out both his arms but she did not move she stood silently regarding him her hands dropped at her side then with drooping head she turned and began wearily to descend the way she had come he followed her and took her hand she let it lie passively in his and walked on he wished he might feel her fingers close warmly about his own but no they were cold she seemed wholly withdrawn from him and her face bore the look of one who was walking in her sleep yet he knew her to be awake miss cassandra speak to me he begged in quiet tones don't walk away until you tell me why you came she seemed then to become aware that he was holding her by the hand and withdrew it and in the faint light he thought she smiled it was just foolishness you will laugh at me i heard the music and i thought it might be you made it i reckon but down there it sounded like it might be the voices you remember how they came to joan of arc like we were reading last week she began to walk on more hurriedly i will go down with you he said you thought it might be the voices what did they say to you oh don't go with me i never heed the dark won't you let me go with you what did the flute say to you can't you tell me she laughed a little then it was only foolishness i reckon the voices never come these days i have heard it before but didn't know where it came from it just seemed to drop down from heaven like 
and this time it seemed like some different, as if it might be the voices calling. It was pretty, sir, far away and soft, like part of everything. My father's playing sounded sad most times, like sweet crying, but this was more like sweet laughing. I never heard anything so glad like this was, so I tried to find it. Now I know it was you who make it. I won't disturb you again, sir. Good evening. She hastened away and was soon lost in the gloom. David stood until he heard her footsteps no more, then turned and entered his cabin, his mind and heart full of her. Surely he had called her, and the sound of his call was to her like sweet laughing. Her face and her quaint expressions went with him into his dreams. When he hurried down to the widow's place next morning, his mind filled with plans which he meant to carry out, and was sure, with the boyish certainty of his nature he could compass, he heard the voice of little Hoyle shrilly calling out to old Pete. Whoa, mule! Haw there! Haw there, mule! What you going that side for? Come round here! Below the widow's house, the stream, after its riotous descent from the fall, meandered quietly through the rich bit of meadow and field, her inheritance for over a hundred years, establishing her claim to distinction among her neighbors. Here Martha Caswell had lived with her mother and her two brothers until she married and went with her young husband over other side Pisgah. Then her mother sent for them to return, begging her son-in-law to come and care for the place. Her two sons, reckless and wild, were allowing the land to run to waste and the buildings to fall in pieces through neglect. The daughter Martha, true to her name, was thrifty and careful, and under her influence her gentle dreamer of a husband who cared more for his fiddle, his books, and his sermons, gradually redeemed the soil from weeds and the buildings from dilapidation, until at last, with the proceeds of her weaving, and his own hard labor, they saved enough to buy out the brother's interests. By that time, the younger son had fallen a victim to his wild life, and the other moved down into the low country among his wife's people. Thus were the Merlins left alone on their primitive estate. Here they lived contentedly with Cassandra, their only child, and her father's constant companion, until the tragedy which she had so simply related to David. Her father's learning had been peculiar. Only a little classic lore, treasured where schools were none and books were few, handed down from grandfather to grandson. His Greek he had learned from the two small books the widow had so carefully preserved, their marginal notes his only lexicon. They, and his Bible, and a copy of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, were all that were left of his treasures. A teething puppy, had torn his dialogues of Plato to shreds, and when his successor had come into the home, he had used the Marcus Aurelius for gun-wadding, ere his wife's precaution of placing the padlock from the door on her mother's old linen chest. Today, as David passed the house, the old mother sat on her little porch churning butter in a small dasher churn. She was glad, as he could see, because she could do something once more. Now, are you happy? He called laughingly as he paused beside her. Well, I be. 
It's been a right smart a while since I've been able to do a lick of work. We sure do have a heap to thank you for. Beta Cater Irwin is glad to lose his foot, as I be to get my leg back, she queried whimsically. I reckon not. I reckon not, too. But with him it was a case of losing his life or his foot, while with you it was only a question of walking about or being bedridden for the next twenty years. They be ignorant, them Irwins, and she more than that, for she's a fool. She come round yesterday wanting to borrow a hole to fix up her garden patch, and she lowed if you and Cass had only left him be, he'd a come through all right, for it were a getting better the day Ewans took it off. I told her, yes, he'd a come clear through to the next world, like Farwell done. When the misery left him, he up and died, and Lord knows where he went. I'll get him an artificial foot as soon as he's able to wear one. He'll get on very well with a peg under his knee until then. What's Hoyle doing with the mule? He's riding him for Cass. She's trying to get the ground ready for a crop. It's all we can do. Our women never were used to do such work, neither, but she would try. What's that? Is she plowing? he asked sharply and strode away. I reckon she don't want you there, doctor, the widow called after him, but he walked on. The land lay in a warm hollow completely surrounded by hills. It had been many years cleared, and the mellow soil was free from stumps and roots. When Thring arrived, three furrows had been run rather crookedly the length of the patch, and Cassandra stood surveying them ruefully, flushed and troubled, holding to the handles of the small plow and struggling to set it straight for the next furrow. The noise of the fall behind them covered his approach, and ere she was aware, he was at her side. Placing his two hands over hers, which clung stubbornly to the handles of the plow, he possessed himself of them. Laughingly, he turned her about after the short tussle and looked down into her warm, flushed face. Still holding her hands, he pulled her away from the plow to the grassy edge of the field, leaving Hoyle waiting astride the mule. Whoa, mule! Stand still there! he shrilled, as the beast sought to cross the bit of plowed ground to reach the grass beyond. Let him eat a minute, Hoyle, said David. Let him eat until I come. Now, Miss Cassandra, what does this mean? Do you think you can plow all that land? Is that it? I must. You must not. There's no one else now. I must. He could feel her hands quiver in his as he forcibly held them, and knew from her panting breath how her heart was beating. She held her head high, nevertheless, and looked bravely back into his eyes. You must let me, he paused. Intuitively, he knew he must not say as yet what he would. Let me direct you a little. You have been most kind to me, and... It is my place. I am a doctor, you know. If I were sick or hurt, I would give heed to you. I would do anything you say. But I'm not, and this is laid on me to do. Leave go my hands, Dr. Thring. If you'll sit down here a moment and talk this thing out with me, I will. Now tell me, first of all, why is this laid on you? Frail is gone, and it must be done, or we will have no crop. 
and then we must sell the animals, and then go down and live like poor white trash. Her low, passive monotone sounded like a moan of sorrow. You must hire someone to do this heavy work. Everyone is working on his own patch now, and, no, I have no money to hire with. I reckon I've thought it all over every way, doctor. She looked sadly down at her hands, and then up at the mountain top. I know you think this is no work for a girl to do, and you're right. Our women never have done such. Only in the war times my grandmother Caswell did it, and I can now. A girl can do what she must. I have no way to turn but to live as my people have lived before me. I thought once I might do different. Go to school and, and keep separate, but... She spread out her hands with a hopeless gesture and rose to resume her work. Give me a moment. I'm not through yet. That's right. Now listen. I see the truth of what you say, and I came down this morning to make a proposition to your mother, not for your sake only, don't be afraid, for my own as well. But I didn't make it because I hadn't time. She told me what you were doing, and I hurried off to stop you. Don't speak yet. Let me finish. I feel I have the right. I know I was sent here just now for a purpose, guided to come here. He paused to allow his words to have their full weight. Whether she would perceive his meaning remained to be seen. I understand, she spoke quietly. Dr. Hoyle sent you to be helped like he was, and you've been right kind more than us. You've helped that many it seems like you were sent here for, we all as well for your own sake. But that can't help me now, doctor. It, ah, yes, it can. I'm far from well yet. I shall be, but I must stay on for a long time, and I want some interest here. I want to see things of my own growing. The ground up around my little cabin is stony and very poor, and I want to rent this little farm of yours. Listen, I'll pay enough so you need not sell your cattle, and you... You can go on with your weaving. You can work in the house again, as you have always done. Sometime, when your mother is stronger, you can take up your life again and go to school, as you meant to live. Can't you? That can never be now. If you take the farm or not, I must bide on here in the old way. I must take up the life my mother lived, and my grandmother, and hers before her. It is mine forever to live it that way, or die. Why do you talk so? God knows, but I can't tell you. Thank you, sir. I will be right glad to rent you the farm. I'd a heap rather you had it than anyone else I ever knew, for we care more for it than you would guess. But for the rest, no, I must bide and work till I die. Only maybe I can save little Hoyle, and give him a chance to learn something, for he never could work, being like he is. Thring's eyes danced with joy as he regarded her. Hoyle is not going to be always as he is, and he shall have a chance to learn something also. Look up, Miss Cassandra. Look squarely into my eyes and laugh. Be happy, Miss Cassandra, and laugh. I say it. She laughed softly then. She could not help it. Wasn't that what the voices were saying last night when you followed? Yes, yes. They seemed like they were calling, Hope, hope, 
but they were not the real voices. You made it. Yes, I made it, and I was truly calling that to you, and you replied. You came to me. Ah, but this is different from the voices she heard. But if they call the truth to you, what then? Doctor, there is no longer any hope for me. God called me and let me cut off all hope once. I did it, and now only death can change it. If I believe you, you must believe me. We won't talk about it any more. I'm hungry. Your mother was churning up there. Let's go and get some buttermilk and settle the business of the rent. You've run three good furrows, and I'll run three more beside them. My first, remember, in all my life. Then we'll plant that strip to sunflowers. Come, Hoyle, tie the mule and follow us. So David carried his way. They walked merrily back to the house, chattering of his plans and what he could raise. He knew nothing whatever of the sort of crops to be raised, and she was naively gay at his expense, a mood he was overjoyed to awaken in her. He vowed that merely to walk over plowed ground made a man stronger. On the porch he sat and drank his buttermilk, and placing his paper on the step, drew up a contract for rent. Then Cassandra went to her weaving, and he and Hoyle returned to the field, where with much labor he succeeded in turning three furrows besides Cassandra's, rather crooked and uncertain ones, it is true, but quite as good as hers, as Hoyle reluctantly admitted, which served to give David a higher respect for farmers in general, and plowmen especially. End of chapter 12